Let me introduce our speaker this evening, uh, Dr. Mike Griffiths. Uh, he previously served at Denton Bible Church in Denton, Texas, and he is also with Serve International, a missions organization. Uh, he, he kind of grew up on the mission field, uh, and he spent time in South America as well as in uh, Papua in, in Southeast Asia. And so Mike has a lot of experience in missions, but he also has a lot of biblical uh, wisdom. As I've gotten to know Mike, I really appreciated that about him is that he's, he, his experience is, is coupled with his knowledge of God's word, of the Bible. And so that's what he'll be, he'll be uh, seeking to bring us to this evening. What does the Bible say about missions? Not, you know, what, what would marketing strategies tell us work to, you know, get our message out to a lot of people? But what does the Bible say about the task of missions and how we're to go about it? And so I want to welcome Brother Mike this evening. Would you please uh, give him a big round of applause? Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. All right, it's good to be with you this evening. I just, uh, I'm coming from a missions event. Have anybody ever been to NWA for the Nations? Heard of that? It's an event they hold each year in, in um, Fayetteville, and I'm just coming from that. I talked to the group there about language learning. And so I, I it's interesting because sometimes you tend to overlap in stories that you tell and you forget which one you told where. So you have to bear with me, but it's good to have you guys all here. Thank you for attending, and um, it'll be a good opportunity for us to talk, think about missions. I've, I'll share more of my personal story because I did grow up in missions. My, my parents were in Venezuela when I was very small, and so my, I grew up in, on the field, and then my wife and I served there. And so let's, um, let's start together thinking about what the Lord is doing in the world. Um, you know, some, some memories in our lives stay very sharp and clear over time. I'll bet you have memories like that. I, I remember one specific event in Venezuela in which I went looking for my mom's grave. I grew up there and had been around that environment for already six years by the time um, that my mom died. In fact, I remember as kids, we would every eight weeks, climb aboard a small Cessna airplane like this one, a tail dragger, a Cessna 185. And we would fly away to a boarding school that was located in another indigenous station, but where there were teachers that were uh, scheduled and ready to teach all of us kids. And this, this was a short takeoff and landing, what they call a stole aircraft, because most of the airstrips that we flew in and out of uh, were very short and very challenging, very tricky. Pilots had to be well-trained. In fact, one time the airplane, this 185, landed on the grass airstrip that my dad had. My parents worked there in tribal church planning uh, with the ethnic group called the Yanama. And the airplane, the, there's, there's a problem that can happen with the 185 where the tailwheel comes down last and it'll float. And the tailwheel floated and the pilot looped the tailwheel around and ground looped the airplane. So that's when the tail comes down and, and crack, crashed it upside down. And so we, we took the airplane apart and we put it in um, these two dugout canoes. Sorry, I've got a, a change here in my slides. Something, something, something adjusted itself up here. 
There we go. So we put the airplane in these two dugout canoes, the wings in one canoe. Now I've done, this was true whitewater rafting. In fact, we told the pilots, we said it's a day and a half trip in really rugged water. And we may or may not be able to get the plane all the way back down. So if we don't make it down, you know, you don't have, you haven't lost anything more than what you had in the first place, which was a crash plane in the interior. But I remember this particular day in uh, August of 1984, we heard the airplane land on a grass airstrip there at the boarding school. And we were on our, our break. And my dad uh, was, was not supposed to be there. We had just flown away to the school a week or so prior. And, and we heard the plane land and we saw my dad come walking up the hill. And the only two people in the dorm there at the time were my sister and I, my older sister, Candy, who was 11, who was 12 and I'm 11 at the time. All the other kids were gone and we didn't really understand why. And we saw my dad come up the hill and we saw my two and four-year-old brothers running along with him. And my sister Candy immediately started crying because she knew something wasn't right. My mom wasn't with my dad. My dad shouldn't be there. And he came up to talk with us and told us that my mom had died in that indigenous community on Saturday night of a, of a mitral valve prolapse, a heart condition that hadn't been diagnosed well. And the problem was that in that day and age, it took him until all the way until Monday morning to get in contact with the, the air crew because we, we, our only contact was through shortwave radios. And so by the time he got in contact with the air crew, they came in, my mom's body was laying on the bed there for a day, day and a bit, covered just covered with a sheet. He tried to keep my my brother's out of the room, and he flew over to see us. He picked us up that Monday morning. We flew straight out to the small interior town of Puerto Ayacucho, and um, within several hours, I remember standing. I remember standing in the pouring rain in the Amazon basin, um, with this running backhoe, smelling diesel fumes as they finished digging a spot to put the coffin in the ground. And I had just, I remember I had just gotten new tennis shoes. And I was, you know, as an 11 year old, I was proud of my new tennis shoes. And it was so muddy that I just couldn't keep that mud off my shoes. And I remember standing there with my dad and my brothers and trying so hard to keep mud off my shoes. And I finally just, just gave up. And so as I think about a memory like that, um, and I think about our personal investments in missions. So my wife and I then later, we returned to the mission field. We returned to Venezuela after we met in graduate school in linguistics. And we, we worked with a tribal people group there that I'll tell you a little more about um, tomorrow and this evening and tomorrow called the Yanama. And, um, I remember we were, we had been there for six years. We had built houses in an airstrip out in a remote area as adult missionaries ourselves. And I was in town for this short, supposed short stay event. And I heard on a public radio address that, uh, this man, Hugo Chavez had determined 
to kick all of the workers out of the interior. And I had previously to that time only been able to find my mom's grave another one occasion. And so before we had to leave the country, I went, I went looking again. And I remember looking and looking in this really poorly kept graveyard that didn't have headstones. So all you could, all you could do is dust off cement pads that sometimes were engraved well enough to see initials and dates. And, and I could not find her grave. And, you know, I think about those issues and I, I don't talk about those kinds of stories, either our getting kicked out of the country after six years or my mom being willing to be in an environment where she was not close to access to medical care for so many years. And I, I don't tell the stories to elicit some kind of sympathy because I, I don't actually feel very pitiful. But I do tell them to help you think of the question, what in the world possesses people to make those kinds of decisions? What motivates Christians to leave their home environments and be willing to go live in those kinds of circumstances? That kind of risk, if you will. That's not the kind of risk that Americans are generally willing to take up. I mean, I've had, since the time I was four, I've had malaria more times than I can count. My, my 32-year-old aunt, who was working in Venezuela, died of falciparum malaria um, after just a week of what seemed to be fluish symptoms, and, and she died there. Uh, my daughter in Papua New Guinea, my two-year-old daughter, was very, very sick, and we thought that she may die from malaria. Um, and in fact, her, my daughter is named after my mom. So she has as her middle name, my mom's name, Talia Pamela. And I just, I just want to ask you not to make heroes out of cross-cultural workers, but to make us think what possesses us to take on those kinds of challenges in the name of Christ. Um, we all generally feel, and this is the conversation I want to have with you, especially in this first session, we all generally tend to feel and that missions is just a kind of sentness in general. As if every Christian, you know, you get the idea or you hear the verbiage. There's even an old Sunday school song, be a missionary every day, right? But I'm challenging us to think that there's a certain kind of priority and a certain kind of sentness that the Bible points toward and, and eventually explicates in the New Testament that makes it clear that there's, there's a responsibility for a curtain, certain kind of sentness into the world. And whether you're a goer, like we were and are, or whether you're a, a person who stays and sends and supports, the fact is that we all have a responsibility in that sentness. And so I want to challenge you to think with me about that, because it isn't enough. I'll tell you right now, I grew up in these kinds of settings as a kid, and I'll show you some more pictures of that later, uh, the second session to keep you awake. As a kid, you know, it was fun. I mean, we, we hunted and fished in the Amazon basin. There were no game wardens around, you know, and the Yanomami people eat everything. Like they'll eat every animal that moves in the jungle. And so we, we had lots of opportunities. As an adult, it's not so fun. 
And when you're there with your own family and you realize what some of the risks might be for that setting, you realize that it's not, it's not as fun uh, as it could be, or you think it would be. And it's certainly naive idealism doesn't sustain you. It won't sustain you. Something else has to sustain you. And so let's begin our journey. And it's not going to be a super long journey. I I will try for six o'clock. If we go a little over that, we'll try to make our second hour a little shorter than an hour. But I want to give you this main idea, because I'd like to start in some of the Old Testament texts, and and, uh, hopefully that all displays on the screen there for you. This idea, because the the commissioning of, of God the command of God for commissioning His people to go into the world starts in the Old Testament. The, the, the Great Commission are passages that we'll talk about in our second hour this evening, but the commissioning of God starts when God tells Adam and Eve in Genesis to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so He mandates that His chosen people fill the earth with his own glory. That, that's a clearly stated command from early on. In fact, some would call that the cultural mandate, but in effect, we call that the commissioning of God, God's revealed presence to be made known throughout the world. And so he establishes his people as they go out into the world as come and see representatives of his glory. There are those who other people around them should look to as examples, as testimonies of the glory of God. And when we talk about the glory of God, that's the kind of word we use a lot, and we don't even know what it means, right? Like, what's the glory of God? Define that for me. I'd ask most people, and they would scratch their head. We're talking about God's revealed presence when we talk about His glory. We're talking about His desire to reveal his own character and his own activity in the world. And so we're the ones responsible for that. And then God points forward in the book of Genesis toward the the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will be the one who will ultimately fulfill all of these things and will be that go and tell individual or gospel message that the church eventually will take up. Okay, so we're going to move from a come and see to a go and tell. Now, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on all these passages, but you can track along with me as we go. That's a big snake. I'll show that to you in a minute. But, but let's first get to, if you want to turn over with me, and we're going to start at the end of the Bible, okay? We're going to start in Revelation chapter 21, and we're going to flip back um, to Genesis chapter 1 in, in just a minute. But we're going to be in Revelation chapter 21 because I want you to see the end of the story as we think about the first commissioning of Adam and Eve, what did God intend to be the outcome of sending, telling Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with his glory? What was his intention? Well, we see the completion of that intention in, Gen- in Revelation chapter 21 in verses 1 to 5. And there's a, there's a critical idea here that I want you to grasp. Now, I know some in the congregation in the room are young, so I'm going to try to keep my concepts down to a manageable level here, but there's a sense in which the garden image of Genesis chapter 1, so the Eden, the the word in Hebrew that means delight, that Eden was a, a, a representation of the realm of God's glory. And you just imagine with me, if 
people had in sinlessness. In other words, if Adam and Eve had not sinned and the human race had perpetuated the glory of God into the world, then the garden in effect would have expanded to cover the whole earth. In other words, God wasn't, God didn't say Adam and Eve, you two stay in the garden and do nothing else. God said to them, you be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's what he said to them. So God's glory, God intended his glory to fill the whole of the earth from the very beginning. And, and we see the way that that is reframed here in Revelation chapter 21, when God says um, through John in Revelation 21, 1 to 5, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Now, one commentator asked the question about this passage, why is it that the language in the passage sounds both like a restored garden, there's language that sounds like a restored garden, and also like a temple. So the imagery that's there is both temple and garden kind of imagery. Why does John see a new heaven and a new earth that sounds a lot like a city, a garden-like city in the shape of a temple? And I think the answer there is because in the beginning, God desired for the whole earth to be the representation of his dwelling place. The temple was established, intended to be a, a singular place that represented the presence, the dwelling of God. And from the beginning, given the sinlessness that was the original state, God's intention was the whole earth be filled with his glory. Now, that's important because as we progress through the scriptures, we, we build from the foundation toward mission that, that gives us this, this clear sense of God's intent to fill the earth with his glory. Now, God's going to take up certain kinds of activities along the way that will, I will say, complicate the picture, one in particular that we'll get to in just a minute. But I want you to capture with me the idea that God intends for the earth to be filled with his revealed presence. That's what God intended from the beginning. So as we jump back then to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, and we read this mandate to Adam and Eve that I've been talking about, we see the direction of God's intent there. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 28. You can read that with me. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. They say this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth 
and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see it, right? You see God's intent for human beings to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it. Now, God, there were some significant issues here or significant ways in which God was relating to his people, his, his created people, Adam and Eve, that, that were prerequisites or requirements for them to do the kind of work that he wanted them to do in the earth. So when God sends them to fill the earth with his glory, he sends them on the condition that they live as his image and likeness. He sends them on the condition that they serve as his representative sons and daughters. They're obedient to his covenant with them. He sends them as those who would then, on the basis of their right relationship with God, that they would be ruling, if you will, over creation as servant kings and queens that would be living on the basis of covenant relationship, loyal love to God because of his loyal love to them. They would be serving to oversee God's created order as those who would fill the earth rightly with his presence in sinlessness. And so I don't want us to have the false impression that in the beginning, there are two areas where we often have false impressions about the, the garden. One is that there was no work to be done, that Adam and Eve kind of just sat around eating fruit, right? But in fact, we see that God instituted work for them. He gave them responsibility before the fall. And the other impression that we have is that they were just indefinitely supposed to be staying in the garden, but God clearly gave them a mandate that looked forward towards them filling the earth with his glory. And so those two images are clear. Other passages confirm this, and I, you don't have to turn to these, but like Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18 says this, he, it says, Yahweh, so the Lord, did not create the earth to be emptied. He formed the earth to be inhabited. That was God's intent. Or Numbers chapter 14, verse 21, where God himself pledges, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, and he, he continues with a promise. And so we see evidences, I don't want to beat the, the horse completely dead, but we see evidences that as people fellowship or commune with God, their commission was to represent him rightly in the world. And so we have this cultivating and keeping kind of idea that, that in fact represents a fellowship function, of a communing function, a, in effect a priestly function. That's one of the reasons why God calls Israel his chosen son is because Israel serves as a kingdom of priests, God says in Exodus chapter 19, on his behalf. So they're fulfilling that kind of priestly function moving forward. But here, the language indicates that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, one, one author says it this way. In fact, we can speak of Genesis 1, 28 as the first commission that was repeatedly applied to humanity. The commission was the blessing of God's salvific presence. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were to produce progeny who would fill the earth with God's glory, being reflected from each of them in the image of God. And that's important because as we move forward, we move through the fall, but I want to encourage us to realize as we move into that fall period, that we, God does not stop the intent of doing this kind of work. God, in fact, tells Noah, if you want to turn real quickly, we're going to move through a few passages today. If you turn over to, no, to Genesis chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 1, God tells Noah, he says, 
Um, in 9 1, he says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, What did he say to them? Did he change the commission? This is post fall. God didn't change the commission. He said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God told them that same command, gave them that same command that he had given to Adam and Eve, and that we bear a sense of responsibility for still. Now, we have this interlude problem, right? We have this interlude problem in Genesis chapter 3. The interlude problem is, as I've alluded to already, is the issue of sin. Now, I don't know, is there anyone here who is not afraid of snakes? You know, it's interesting, as I travel around the world, people tend to be afraid of snakes. I don't, I don't meet too many people who, if they cross a snake unexpectedly in their path, they don't jump. Maybe you happen to be one of those. It just, and it, you know, in the Amazon, I told you I'd show you this picture. We have multiple kinds of snakes. The anacondas there can get to 20 feet long, at least the ones that have been recorded. And, and we've seen some that weigh up to 180 pounds. Now that's a big snake, right? So will you think of the kind of snake that's represented in the garden, maybe something more along the lines of a bushmaster, a bushmaster in the Amazon is up to, we killed this one that was up to seven feet long. They have fangs. You can see the fangs over the edge of this machete there on the front edge that if a, if you get bitten by a Bushmaster, the, the mortality rate is somewhere around 80%. So 80% of the people who are struck die from these snakes, right? So it is, it's interesting that the, the, the issue of snakes in the world does take this tone of, people being afraid of snakes. And we, and we think of the same issue in the garden scene there. When God, um, we hear that, we read the account in Genesis chapter three of this, this strange creation, and we could talk for a while about that, and we won't, that came to Eve and tempted her. And we know that Eve and Adam, Adam as the one who was responsible to, t- to tell truth, to teach truth, they, that, that they fell into sin, that they ate from the fruit. And we have here in this interlude, it's, it, I think it's important to, re, to realize that in the midst of us talking about God's glory to the ends of the earth and God's intent for that to happen, that we see this first gospel here. You may be familiar with this, but let, let's read it together in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. This first gospel message that's here in Genesis 3, 14, 15. This is God speaking the curse on the serpent after the fall. And these verses are probably familiar to you. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then this critical verse, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I don't know if you have, anybody know offhand what we call that? There's a, there's a Latin word that we use to talk about that, that idea there. Anybody? Just made, what's that? There, that is a Latin term. <laughs> Proto-evangelium or proto-evangelion, which means first gospel. So the, the church fathers described this verse as a first statement of the gospel. Because what we see here 
in spite of and maybe in interaction with this fear of snakes that we still deal with in the world, we see this promise from God that the snake would be would bruise the heel of the woman. And, and the offspring mentioned there is singular in, in the Hebrew, so that it's a offspring of the woman, but this, the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That's important in the flow of the narrative of thinking about the glory of God to the ends of the earth, okay? Because there's going to have to be an intervening redemptive act on God's part that's going to make all that work possible in the future, all right? So I'm not beating the point to death. I just want you to catch it as we go. All right, now we're moving to Genesis chapter 10. So we've talked about uh, the first commission. We've talked about um, the renewed commission with Noah. We've talked about what I call the first gospel. So lots of firsts, lots of protology in Genesis. That's important for us. Now in, in Genesis chapter 10, we have the first language diversity. And that also is important in the story of mission in the Bible. Okay, so in Genesis chapter 10... We have this, this account of what we talk about as the, the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. Now, it's confusing for us, and I won't spend a lot of time with it, but I want you to notice that Genesis chapter 10, that what we call the Table of Nations, okay? It comes in the Bible before Genesis chapter 11, but the events of Genesis 10 happen after Genesis 11. Are you with me there? You following me? Because Genesis 11 talks about the way in which the nations get distributed in the world, and they get distributed on the basis of the listing, the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. And I just want you to notice, just scan, scan with me in Genesis 10, just a couple of touch points. It says in Genesis 10.1, the sons of Noah, talks about the sons of Noah. Genesis 10.5, it says, from these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans, in their nations. It's not often the case that we as Christians connect the reference point of language identity with national identity. Because we're, we tend to think of nation in, in keeping with political borders. But the fact is that the Bible connects na nation and ethnic identity with language identity. We see that again in Genesis uh, 10, 20, where the, the verse says the same. It says, the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, their nations, it says. And the same in 31 and 32, these are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, their nations. And then talks in 32, the summary, then from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So I, I want you to think and remember with me that God describes national identities as language identities all throughout the scriptures. Tomorrow morning, we'll see that from even from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 15. Now, that's important because in Genesis chapter 11, verse 1, we have the same basic problem re-emerging. The problem is that Genesis 11.1 1 says the whole earth had one language and the same words, and a people migrated from, a, from the east. They found a plain in the land of Shinar. They settled there, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. And the, they give the reason why. They say, 
lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, what does that sound like to you? What's that? That's right, exactly. Opposing the, the plan of God. From the beginning, we've already seen that God's intent was that they be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And here, they're making a name for themselves. And later in Genesis chapter 12, just a chapter later, we're going to see that God intends to make a name for himself through Abraham. That God says, I, you will be a name for me. You will, be a, you will receive a name, land, and, a, and be a blessing to all nations. But here we see that, that the people did not want to do that. And so God himself, in verse 6, he says, The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, they have all one language, and there is, this is only the beginning of what they will do now, or what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, the, the name, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over all the, the face of the earth. And so we have this event where God intentionally confuses the languages so that people would be dispersed over the face of the earth. And in the process, it's interesting to me that God could have chosen a lot of barriers to people unifying against him. He could have chosen religious affiliation. He could have chosen even, I guess, some kind of political affiliation, right? That happens in our world, doesn't it? He could have chosen some other ethnic designator. He could have chosen a cultural designator, but God didn't do any of those things. He himself, the creator of the language faculty, chose to use language as the way to ensure that people would not unite themselves in high-handed rebellion against him. That's what God chose to do. Now, I find that to be very interesting and important in what I think of as the story of missions. And as we have that Genesis chapter 10, then we see all those evidences of the languages spreading throughout the world and the name Babel that means confusion and the fact that God created that situation in the way that he wanted to, and he uses language as a massive barrier to understanding truth. Now, listen, I have lived around the world. I'm going to share that a little more with you. I've had the privilege of interacting significantly with six languages. I grew up in an environment where I was speaking English and two others regularly. And then in Papua New Guinea, we, we interacted with two more when I was in high school, a, a sixth of them. And I'm just telling you, that in my experience, there is no more significant barrier to understanding the truth than language. I have found no more significant barrier. And I, it's not an accident that that is the case in our experience, because God created that dilemma. He did not want people to fill the earth with something other than eventually his glory. He had already instituted the rescue plan that would take shape in the person of Jesus Christ in the gospel. So he was going to provide a means by which those people that he scattered around the earth would have access to truth, okay? So you, I, I trust you're following the thread with me here. So when we get to Genesis chapter 12, then we have these promises through Abraham that extend to the nations. 
So Genesis chapter 12, let's just read a few verses here. Genesis chapter 12, one to three, okay? Now the Lord said to Abram, now this is Abram, the descendant of one of the sons of Noah. Anybody remember which one? Is that, is that scary to say out loud? What's that? Shem. That's right, Shem. So Japhethites are those who would have moved north. Many of the Hamites moved to, the, to the, what would have been the west and the south. But the, the Shemites, the Semites, Semitic languages, in fact, if you look at language trees in the world, it's interesting because there are Semitic languages, there are Hamitic languages, and there, there are Indo-European languages because we don't say the word Japhethitic. But there are other language families that exist because that's hard to say, right? I mean, I can only say it once fast and I can't say it twice. So the, in this instance, we have a descendant of Shem who God specifically calls out because now God is going to call out an individual who will eventually form the foundation of a specific nation that, that is going to be the exemplar nation who relates to God, the Israelites, eventually. And he says to Abraham, Go from your, your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, you guys, I, ho I hope you know that that and are hearing that when you see... Um, family, nation, clan, kinds of imagery used, God is describing the redeeming of those scattered ones that have taken up language identities throughout the world that he wants to be returned to him as his image bearers. That God intended for Abraham to be the source of blessing. And we know the story. We know that that person who will be the source of blessing through the person of Abraham is the fulfillment of the Genesis chapter 3 promise, the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, who would then produce a, a king, a Davidic king, as a matter of fact, a root of David, an eternal king who would, who would be the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God all along has been instituting this gospel rescue plan that would extend to the families of the earth, to the languages of the world. And there are all kinds of evidences of that confirmation of covenant that God made with Abraham. This is not a conditional covenant in that way. In other words, God is giving a promise to Abraham on behalf of all the families of the earth. I'm telling you, this promise is yours, right? Isn't that right? If we wouldn't have access to the gospel unless someone through the seed of Abraham came and learned our language and made the Bible that you're, some of you are holding in your hands available in your language so that you would be a fulfillment of the promise of the blessing of the gospel to the ends of the earth through Abraham. So that's a blessing that you possess, and God himself provides the means of that blessing coming to fulfillment. In fact, one of the miracles of the Bible is to trace God's preservation of the line of promise throughout the Old Testament. Because time and time again, God intervenes in story after story in the Old Testament to preserve the promise of the Messiah in such a way that by the time we get to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we see evidence that God has done this preserving work for the line of David all throughout so that Jesus can represent that sent king that will reign eternally, that will secure our salvation, that will secure the salvation of the families of the earth. 
And so that representative line chosen by God to bring about what God says in Genesis chapter 49, the obedience of all the peoples. That's what God says. And so then we have, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time with it because our time is running, but we have this idea there that I mentioned in Exodus chapter 19. I just would like you to flip there so you know the reference point. We won't read a lot of verses, but Exodus chapter 19, this is when the people of Israel have finally been redeemed from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And God has made these promises to them through Abraham. And in Exodus chapter 19, they're standing before the place of the holy presence of God, Mount Sinai. God is about to give them the Ten Commandments as the law. And God says to them as they stand before Mount Sinai, as they safeguard themselves against being destroyed by the holiness of God by keeping separation from the mountain, God says to them through Moses in Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how God rescued his people in that remarkable redemptive event. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine, he says. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So we see God choosing that unique come and see nation who would be the safeguarding point for this messianic king who would come. And Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, which is a key verse here, says, Isaiah 49, verse 6 says, I will make you, talking about the suffering servant Messiah, Jesus Christ who would come, it says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And so God's glory among the nations, you know, even some of the most familiar stories that you know, if we took the time to look at them, we would find that God intended and describes all throughout the Old Testament to make himself known to the ends of the earth. His intention has not changed. You know, if we read, if we took the time to look at the story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17, we find David saying when he had victory over Goliath that God's purpose in his victory was to make himself known to the ends of the earth. Did you know that? It wasn't just some localized event. It was for God to be known everywhere. We see those kinds of promises and statements made all throughout the Old Testament. And so we're talking about this, this reality of, of responsibility that starts to develop for the people of God to be the institution by which God makes himself known to everyone everywhere. So as we think about that, and we think about, I, I hope you're thinking a little bit now with me. I know some of you have not ever experienced significant language barriers as markers of identity for people groups. But I can tell you from experience that I've had access to a lot of those. And I, I have this stack of books, the stack of Bibles in my office there at UBC. That's a stack of Bibles from the languages where we've worked or learned. So let me, let me just point to you the, the significance of some of those barriers to truth and understanding. Let me, let me, let me help you think briefly with me about what some of those barriers might sound like. You ready? 
Here's one. Anybody pick up any words from that? I mean, surely it's just another language, right? Like, surely there's something in there that rings a bell. No, there isn't, right? Well, that's John 3.16 in the Atta language of Papua New Guinea. And I dare say you didn't get a word, right? Not a word. How about this one? Anybody? Still no, right? That's John 3.16 in Yanomamu in the tribal language that my parents worked with, my grandmother translated the New Testament for. Or how about this one? God, he got one pala picking that's all he stopped. That's all God, he like him too much, all get the man maybe long ground. All same now, me give him this pala one pala picking long all. Let me give him all same long, all get the man maybe bleep long and all no can lose, no God. All by old kiss him live, he stop all time, all time. Anybody? That is John 3.16 still. You got me. I'm there. That's Melanesian pidgin. That's the national language of Papua New Guinea. Now, here's one that might sound a little more familiar. Porque Deus amou mundo tal maneira que deu seu filho unigênito para que todo aquele que nele crea não pereça, mas tenha a vida eterna. Anybody guess that one? That's Portuguese. That's John 3.16 there. How about this one? This one might ring, ring a little clear with some of you. Porque tanto amó Dios al mundo que dio a su Hijo unigénito para que todo el que cree en él no se pierda, sino que tenga vida eterna. Some of you probably have taken enough Spanish to have a sense of that one, right? But how about this? How about this? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's clear, right? God himself created the barriers that separate peoples around the world from truth. And he himself instituted a rescue plan to restore, through the gospel, people to himself. He did that because he wanted to have worshipers for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, I'm just going to flip up here a definition of missions. Um, and this, this can be... <laughs> I, was, I was talking to some folks this morning, and uh, this can be interestingly contentious. Okay, and here's the reason why. So I took it off because you'll start reading it and then we'll be off and running. This can be interestingly contentious because um, we, we think about missions and in our, in our good heartedness, we want everything that we do to, in a sense, be missions. In other words, you go witness to the neighbor across the street and there, there is a sense in which you're sent in the world for a task of some kind. Okay, I get that. But 
On the other hand, I, I would like for us together in our times together to now, later, and tomorrow to at least consider the possibility that there's a category of responsibility based on what the Scripture is teaching and what we've been talking about that reserves the label of missions for a unique kind of sentence, okay? Now, what I'm not doing is taking issue with good Christian work. We have, Believe me, we've had this conversation at UBC, and it's an interesting one. Because if, if someone comes up to me and says, hey, we're going to go do a family missions trip, but we're going to Memphis. Well, in my, <laughs> in my definition of missions, that is good Christian work that a family does together. But in my understanding of missions from the scriptures, I would categorize global sentence differently than local ministry work, Okay. I'm not, what I'm not saying is don't take a family work and ministry trip so that your family can be exposed to that kind of work. What I am saying is that I believe on the definition that we see, or the basis of what the scriptures teach here, and also what the scriptures teach moving forward. And when we talk about the Great Commission in our next session, when we talk about the, the, the ministry work of the Apostle Paul tomorrow morning, I think we consistently find that the kind of sentness that God wants for us is the kind of sentence that takes us across cultural language boundaries to share the gospel with the families of the earth. That's my proposition for you. That's why we're at this conference. We're talking about defining unreached in a certain kind of way. And this is the kind of proposition that I would suggest to you as what, what is the, the, the priority work of the church in missions, now, I am not proposing to you that other good Christian work is not good Christian work. So don't mishear me. I'm not saying to you that working in local orphan care or doing local outreach or doing local evangelism, building responsibly the kingdom of God around us is good Christian work. But I, I want to create a category that addresses the Genesis question that originates in Genesis chapter 1 and extends to the person of Christ, that extends into the Great Commission, that extends into the prototype ministry of the Apostle Paul, that points us toward a specific kind of priority for missions, okay? So just bear with me. I know this ruffles some of your traditional sensibilities. I mean, we do have entities that call themselves mission entities that don't do global work. But I, I want us to see this because I think not only is there biblical uh, merit for it, I also think it's important for us to feel a sense of responsibility for this kind of work. We're not only responsible as Christians for local work. In some way, we all take up a responsibility inherent in the command to Abraham and throughout the Old Testament in the person of Christ, in the Great Commission, in the ministry of the Apostle Paul that points us responsibly toward the unreached. It's not all that Christians do, but I contend that it's one of the significant priorities of Christian responsibility. And so I believe that missions is that work of taking the gospel, the local church being responsible to take the gospel across cultural and language boundaries to make disciples and gather those disciples into local churches and to prioritize those places where Christ has not been yet named and therefore God not yet worshiped, God not yet glorified, God's name not known, God's presence not yet established from the beginning of time. That's what God wanted. He created the barriers to that. 
and he created the solutions. Okay, so that's where we're headed. Anybody know, and we'll stop, take a break now. Anybody know how many languages there are in the world? Unique languages. Any guesses at that? When my grandparents started surveying unreached languages, they thought there were about 500. They found out there, were more, there are more. There, there, I'll just tell you, there are 7,000, right now, 7,151 known living languages. Okay, 7,151. English is one, as you can imagine, a big one. There are still 3,000 of those languages that have no significant gospel witness. Many of those 3,000 don't have any portion of the scriptures available to them in their own language. Now, I'm just challenging you to think with me, and you can say, well, it's convenient for you to say. I mean, you spent a lot of time doing this kind of thing. Sure, that's right. But I've also had the privilege of seeing those barriers up close and realizing the significance of the need to communicate truth across those kinds of barriers and feeling a responsibility based on what we've been talking about already tonight, that we prioritize the gospel going to places where God's glory is not yet present because people speak languages and live in cultural environments where God is not yet named. So I contend with you as an implication, and we'll, I, I really mean it, we're going to stop, that since God desires that his image bearers fill the whole earth with worship of him alone, mission seeks to fill the whole earth with the worship of God. And since God created languages as a point of wise division, in his wisdom, he created that division point that he will overcome through the gospels, unifies humanity and worship of him, that mission seeks to cross cultural and linguistic boundaries with gospel work. Okay, so that's, that's the frame of reference where we're starting our time tonight. And in our second session, we're going to move all the way. We just covered the whole Old Testament. Congratulations, right? Now, we I did my best to give an overview of some of the key issues. And now in, in the second segment, we're going to talk about some of the Great Commission mandates. Can we think of the Great Commission if I ask you that, and I will after a bit here, what the Great Commission is. You probably have something specific in mind. So we'll talk about that and see how that connects to all of this discussion about what missions is, how we define it. Okay, so let's pray together. And then we'll share some fellowship time. All right. I'm glad. Hey, it looks like everybody's still with me. So that's good. I know it's, it's Saturday night and some of you watch college football games. Who knows? So here we go. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your grace for us. Um, I, I trust that we do take your purposes seriously. I trust that we marvel in your, your desire to see your glory at the ends of the earth, that all nations everywhere would have opportunity to, to be in, in the temple, if you will, the, the already but not yet temple where your presence resides, where we one day will dwell together as a multitude of identities together, worshiping you before the throne, as Revelation talks about in other places. So we pray that we can begin to take seriously um, or continue to take seriously the opportunities you give us to be goers, to be senders, to be those who commit ourselves to this kind of, of work. And we pray in Jesus' name for the grace for that. Amen.